Father, it's an immense privilege for us to gather today to hear your words. In a world where many sit in darkness, we need your help and therefore ask that your spirit would illumine our minds, that we might understand more of you. We ask that our hearts and minds would be captivated by the gospel of grace. And we pray, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit and enable us to be those who wholeheartedly surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose precious name we pray. Amen. Well, this last week, the British government basically collapsed as its populist and chaotic leader, Boris Johnson, lost all political power. His downfall from office was publicized across the world. It was almost Shakespearean. Scores of plotters from across the party moving in on him overnight. He was surrounded by a growing slew of allegations of dishonesty and cover-up. The judgment was made that the prime minister was no longer fit for office. As one by one, his cabinet went to see him and said, the gig is up, the show is over. Over 40 different government ministers resigned during the week, a record in political history. Outside number 10 Downing Street, commentators were comparing his final days to the last days of Donald Trump, who refused to accept the election results, they said. And his initial refusal to accept the result almost sparked a complete constitutional crisis where the Queen would have to get involved to remove him. But by Thursday, it was clear that the game was over, the gig was up. A podium was placed outside Downing Street. He walked up and then looked into the cameras, almost broken by it all, and announced to a nation baying for his blood that he was going to resign. Because the terrifying reality of earthly power is that you have it, and then it's taken away. That's true in any management. It's actually true financially. You have financial power, and then in the stock market, it's all gone as the markets go against you. He was just in office for two and a half years. He had won the biggest election victory since 1979. But he was a here today, gone tomorrow leader. And the question this morning is, what about God? What about God's government of the universe? Is it like that? Is it possible that God could be in office and in power with authority and then somehow become compromised or toppled or thwarted or weakened by an enemy, by the world, by the devil? I ask that question just because it is actually what so many people believe. There are two theological errors, both conveniently beginning with the letter D. The first wrong idea about God is deism. Deism is the idea that God made the world and then he kind of went back upstairs to the upstairs part of the universe. He made it like a watch. And now he sits upstairs as it tick ticks along, but he's not really involved anymore. He's an absent leader. He's a distant God. Deism. And then there's dualism. 
Dualism is the idea that, yes, God is in control, but actually the universe is like a cosmic wrestling ring where good God is in cosmic constant battle with bad God, Satan. And on certain days and in certain periods of church history, good God will win, but actually there'll be dark times when bad God, Satan, defeats God and his kingdom forever. Both these ideas, deism and dualism, are wrong and we're about to discover why, because our God, the God who created, who rules and sustains, is supreme and sovereign over this universe and over every threat and enemy forever. We're turning to Psalm 93, to John Calvin's favorite psalm, to one of a group of songs called the Royal Psalms, running from Psalm 93 to 99. These songs were sung at great royal events, coronations, royal birthdays, and weddings. And each of them functions as a royal proclamation, declaring the totality of God's rule and his absolute kingship over the whole universe and forever. And Psalm 93 is a much-needed medicine for us today, as it declares for us in raw power the omnipotent sovereignty of our God, of the Lord mentioned five times in this short psalm. It is all about him. There are notes if you want to follow them in our sheets. Uh, Why don't you pick these up? Because the first point is this, the supreme reign of God. Spurgeon calls Psalm 93 a psalm of omnipotent sovereignty and it's not difficult to see why. The psalm opens with an astonishing declaration Verse 1, the Lord reigns. And in the Hebrew, it's decisive. You can put at least five exclamation marks after that clause. The Lord here is the promise-making, promise-keeping God who revealed himself to Moses and then saved the nation of Israel. The Lord in capitals is Yahweh. He is the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God who always saves his people, who always keeps his promise. He is a God who reigns. But how does he reign? Notice three things. First, the psalmist says, in transcendent majesty. Verse 1, he's clothed in majesty. The word majesty in the Hebrew is very hard to define, but it literally means lifted up. It literally means transcendence. This then is a king of supreme authority, and in my thesaurus, majesty has to do with magnificence, splendor, awesomeness, loftiness, or nobility. The idea is that this God is clothed, if you like, he is encircled, in magnificent, glorious splendor. Well, many years ago, as I've mentioned, I think, I used to work as, a, as, a, as an attorney, as a barrister in central London. And on that trip that we had to take just a few weeks ago, I, I took Sam, our second, to London uh, on the trip, and I took him to where I used to work, right in the middle of an area called the Temple, next to Temple Church. And then I decided to take him up Chancery Lane, to the shop called Eden Ravenscroft, where barristers uh, have to buy their wigs and robes. 
Um, they send them all over the world to New Zealand and to Africa and Canada and all places around the world that still wear judicial wigs and gowns. And I, I took him downstairs to see the wigs being sewn with horsehair. And then I took him to a picture of Her Majesty the Queen because Eden Ravenscroft not only make judicial robes and baronial robes and judicial and barrister's robes, they actually are the robe maker to Her Majesty the Queen and ever have been ever since uh, Queen Victoria. And we saw this extraordinary picture of Her Majesty the Queen in robes uh, made by the robe makers, Eden Ravenscroft. And you look at the picture and you say, it is a picture of magnificent splendor, the Queen in majesty in her uh, extraordinary uh, dress. But no earthly sovereign can ever compare to the magnificence of God. Because here it's not just that he's robed in majesty, rather that majesty is part of his very essence. It's part of his essential DNA. He is awesome, not in the American sense of the word, but in the true sense of the word. This is a God full of extraordinary, glorious awe. And his majesty is his character. This is the God of perfect love, perfect purity, perfect kindness, perfect justice. And the story of the Bible is how this God far above us in transcendent power and judgment becomes imminent to us, close to us in covenant love in the forgiveness of sins. The apostles saw something of this as they went up to the mountain, he, Jesus, was, was transfigured before them. And Peter can write in Second Peter of that extraordinary account that we were, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And the apostle John can put it like this, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The majesty is the grace and the truth of God the Almighty. In Job chapter 37, Job writes then that God is a God of terrible majesty. This is terrifying. It is awe-inspiring. In power and in purity, God and his character is overwhelming to us like nothing we have ever seen or will ever see on the face of the earth. And I wonder if the West has lost something of this. I wonder if the church in America has lost something of this awe at the extraordinary, overwhelming majesty of the transcendent God. The writer David Wells puts it like this, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique, insufficient organization, or antiquated music, and those who want to squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of the blood spilling from the true wound. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth too distant, his grace too ordinary, his judgment too benign, his gospel too easy, his Christ 
too common. We've lost transcendence majesty. The second sense in which he reigns is in victorious power because he's put on and girded himself with strength. This now is military language. Here is a king preparing for war. And very often you see kings or queens in amazing majesty in their palaces and robes, but it's now as if this king has taken off his state robes and put on battle armor and mounted the horse to lead the army into battle. Here is a king heading to the battlefield. We've switched, if you like, from the majesty now of the sovereign in the palace to the power of the king in battle armor on the battlefield. Of course, leaders are always trying to project power. You see it in Red Square as the Kremlin leaders stand there and as the, as the rockets are, are brought past, as the troops and the tanks march past. Yesterday, I drove past the Pentagon and I, I tried to explain to the kids on the journey that that's the Pentagon, probably the most um, powerful place in the West. And I was trying to explain the 770 uh, is it 777 billion that the U.S. spends on national defense? 777 billion. But it's nothing compared to God's power. This is a king who's truly formidable, a king of absolute power. And the point about this king is he's not passive, but active in his rule. He might look passive in his palace in robes, but now you see the king is in body armor, heading into battle against evil. Not passive, because he's a God who will judge it. A warrior king, he's put on strength, ready to inflict a decisive defeat against evil wherever he sees it. In the final judgment he will bring at the end of the age when Jesus Christ returns in power and glory to defeat wickedness and to overturn Satan and all who side with him forever. And a third sense in which he reigns in eternal sovereignty, because your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. All rulers are in office temporarily. They are here today, gone tomorrow presidents, whether it's Kennedy or Nixon, Bush, Clinton, Reagan or Obama. There was a, a clear beginning. It was glorious. And then there was a devastating end, whether it was assassination or defeat in the election or whether it was the end of their term in office. And if you go to Westminster Abbey, one of my favorite places in London, you can actually go into what's called the tombs uh, of the sovereigns. All around you are previous great kings and queens. Elizabeth I is buried there. She reigned from 1558 to 1603. Elizabeth Gloriana, the great age, the golden age of England. If you head out to Windsor, you'll find in Frogmore Gardens the burial site of Queen Victoria, 1876 to 1901. But no matter how glorious the presidents or the queen, here today, gone tomorrow, but this king is the only sovereign eternal potentate. Yes. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. This is way above our pay grade. He's eternal. He's always been there. 
He always will be there as the creator and ruler of the cosmos. He will never be toppled in a coup, defeated by Satan, ousted from office, or impeded. His throne is secure, it says, because he is from everlasting, and this world was created by him and cannot contain him. In other words, the Lord reigns. But here's the problem. You look at the verse, maybe it's your screensaver, or maybe you go home from church today, and you head out into a world where that doesn't make sense. The Lord reigns, the psalmist says, but it ain't our world, is it? You're thinking about this, the Lord reigns, and then suddenly the phone call comes. There's been a car crash, and she's been killed. The Lord reigns, you say, and then suddenly you get the results back from the doctor's office, and it is cancer. The Lord reigns, it says, but then you hear that you've just been made redundant. The Lord reigns, it says, but then the stock market goes down and all your savings are wiped out in the crash. The Lord reigns, it says, but then you go onto the website tomorrow morning and you see how the progressive tide of increasing wickedness is descending on our country. President Biden, for example, saying this week that the Supreme Court judges are extremists and that he will pass an executive order to overturn Roe v. Wade's ban by the Supreme Court. The Lord reigns? It doesn't look like it, does it? Because now we move to our second point and the clear and present danger. And we might be tempted in verses 1 to 2 to think the psalmist is in denial, completely and utterly blind to the realities of our world, but he isn't. Because in verse 3, we now move from the rule of God to the clear and present danger. Listen to this. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. And the poetry here is deliberately powerful and evocative. In Hebrew, the way that you make a point is you repeat it twice. But here, he repeats it three times. Three times the threats is underlined. And the vocabulary in poetry here builds to underline that the threat, far from getting better, is getting worse. The picture here is of an unstoppable flood, an engulfing and destroying tsunami of evil as the storm surge of wickedness mounts against God. The floods have lifted up, O lords. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their pounding waves. We're somewhere on the New Jersey shore as we stand there in the storm as these, as these rollers come in from the Atlantic. Because all the way through the Old Testament, the sea stands for the picture of cosmic, evil, restless, pounding, relentless, unstoppable, and destructive. In Isaiah 57 verse 20, the wicked are like the troubled sea that can't rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. In Isaiah 17 verse 20, woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the sea and the rushing of the nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. 
And in Jeremiah 6, verse 23, they will lay hold of bow and spear. They are cruel, the nations. They have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea against the kingdom of God as they ride on horses, men of war. These waters of cosmic, restless, uncontrollable, surging evil. This is terrifying. Every sailor's worst nightmare. This is DEFCON 1. This is threat level critical. In 1917, the Bolsheviks swept into power in Russia, and men who hated God held on to power. Lenin was the leader. He called the idea of God, quote, an unutterable vileness. And his reign with Stalin's was to prove one of the worst and most terrifying moments in church history. The campaign was designed by the Soviet authorities to dismantle the church and inculcate atheism across the life of Russia. The godless five-year plan was launched by Stalin in 1928. It gave local cells of the League of Militant Atheists tools and power to destroy all churches and Christians in their vicinity. One day after taking power, the communists passed their decree on land, seizing all churches across the nation, and with it, homes owned by Christian believers. In the following month, church weddings were declared invalid, along with the registrations of births, and funerals. In January 1918, the church was forced out of all the schools as the state formally severed ties. Lenin declared, we must now wage the most resolute and merciless war against the pastors and crush their resistance with such brutality that they will not forget about it for decades. Show trials for pastors were established. Christians were sent to executions two-thirds of Russia's 1,000 monasteries were closed. The sacked churches were transformed into anti-religious museums of atheism. And by 1939, the 46,000 churches in Russia had been reduced to 200 as war was declared, not just on the Orthodox Church, but on the Mennonites, the Catholics, and the Lutherans, as churches were blown up vandalized and smashed. The revolutionaries were merciless. Over 12,000 clergy were murdered, shot, beaten to death, or hanged or drowned. And in 1930, a secret police report put the number of Orthodox clergy who had died in death camps at 42,800. One archbishop was forced to dig his own grave before he was shot to fall into it and another bishop was lashed to the paddle wheel of an enormous steamboat as he was twisted to death by the blades and drowned. Concentration camps were established in 1937 as bloody purges resulted in the arrests of 168,000 clergy. Christians suffered brutally in schools if they professed faith and by the end of this extraordinary culture war, it is estimated that the total number of Christian 
victims under Soviet brutality ranges between 12 to 20 million. Imagine living through that. The Bolshevik Revolution, all the way through to the crumbling of the Soviet Union, knowing that there are KGB agents right here today in the church informing on us any flicker of faith and belief snuffed out under the threats of death. The seas are rising up. The pounding, relentless, unstoppable wave of evil. And I've got a question for you. Do you think it could ever get that bad in the West? Do you think it could one day be like that, even here in the United States of America, as the progressive tide of revolutionary woke means we can't work at that bank or take out that mortgage or be in that school or profess that faith? Is it possible here, even in the United States of America, that one day we might be sacked, arrested, imprisoned? Is it possible one day we might face even death for the kingdom of God as the surge of evil, of the waves pounding against the kingdom of God engulf us? Because the question is this, what's God's response? Is it DEFCON 1, threat level critical, uh, is the president being uh, put down in the bunker of the White House or, or being put onto Air Force One to get out because of this terrifying threat like what happened in Sri Lanka this week as they stormed the palace and he was evacuated? Is God freaked, panicked? Is God distressed, not quite clear what to do anymore? Is God feeling overwhelmed? Not at all. Because look at the text. What now happens in response to this threefold threat comes a threefold answer. The psalmist declares in the face of the threefold threat of verse three, more than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And I've told Nancy that my favorite hymn is that hymn that we sung last week. It's the Royal Navy hymn I almost joined the Royal Navy. It's a declaration of God's power over the waters. O Savior, we sung it last week. O Savior, whose almighty words, the winds and waves submissive herds, who walked upon the foaming deep and calm amidst their rage did sleep. O hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea. We are those in peril in the face of the sea, but we're not really in peril because our God is enthroned over the sea. One of my favorite stories from history is that of King Canute. He was king of Denmark, actually England and Norway, and he was praised as a great monarch, but he was fearful. He was fearful that the peoples of Denmark, England, and Norway thought of him of having more power than he did. So he arranged one day for his throne to be put on the beach. As the tide came in, he ordered the waters to recede. And then his feet got wet. And then his knees. And then his throne. The point was made. Don't worship me. They had too high a view of Canute. But I think 
we have too low a view of Jesus. Because as we turn to Mark chapter 4, listen to this, a great windstorm arose, actually a hurricane. The waves beat into the boat. You know the story. It was already filling with water. And he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep. Do you think Jesus might be asleep in the face of evil, unable to tame it? They said, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Then he arose. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? They greatly feared and said to one another, who is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. This truth that our God reigns even over cosmic, relentless evil needs to, needs to dissolve in our hearts like the sugar in the coffee later on. That even if the floodwaters seem overwhelming, even if you feel like you're drowning in this world, even if you feel like this, this tsunami is going to sort of drive you away, this tsunami is not an, even, a, even a ripple uh, to God. Listen to this from Spurgeon. Whatever opposition may arise, his throne is unmoved. He has reigned, does reign, and will reign forever, whatever turmoil and rebellion there may be beneath the clouds. The eternal king sits above all in supreme serenity, and everywhere he is master. Let his foes rage as they may. All things are ordered according to his eternal purposes, and his will is done. And the place where this warrior king went into battle against cosmic evil and defeated it eternally was the cross. He went to the cross at Calvary, and as he died there, taking the penalty for our sin and shame, as he paid to God the price that was owed, as he died for sinners like us, he defeated the power of Satan, providing us with forgiveness for all our sin, whoever you are and whatever you have done so that you might be freed from the power of Satan and from the power of sin and death, for through his mighty resurrection, he has been raised to lead us to eternal glory by his grace forever. And therefore, the question is the question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 28, what does it benefit us <clears throat> to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his eternal providence? Do you know the answer? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. And the Puritans had the phrase, which I love, soft is the pillow of providence to the anxious heads. Are you anxious? 
Are you anxious about sin and evil? Are you anxious about the future for your children in America? Soft is the pillow of providence to the anxious head because the providence of God here in Psalm 93 declares that nothing can thwart his plans, that no one can defeat his kingdom because he is the Lord's who reigns majestically, powerfully, and eternally. And it leads us lastly to what I want to call this urgent call to holiness. If this God reigns, what that means is what he says stands. If this God reigns, it means that his word is indeed true. Verse 5, your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. It doesn't seem like that verse belongs in our psalm, but here's the point. This psalm was written to the Jews in exile. And as they saw how the nations had seemingly defeated gods, as they lived in exile in Babylon, it looked like the, the pounding waters had drowned God's kingdom forever. So what do you reckon was the temptation? The temptation was now to abandon the kingdom, to forget the gospel, to forget Jerusalem, and to go with the flow and to give way to the zeitgeist, the mood, the culture around them. The temptation for them is exactly the same as the temptation you'll face tomorrow morning in your office and factory, wherever you are. If you believe that God's kingdom has effectively been defeated, you will give way to the nations. But only if you believe God is in complete control will you stand firm. But what does it mean to stand firm? It means to be people who abide by and believe in and obey His statutes, His words, His gospel, His decrees. Verse 5, they are trustworthy because Jesus has died and been raised and soon will return. And just as the Jew was to long for return to Jerusalem, we are to long for the day we return to his house. But what does it mean to live for the kingdom of God and to await his house? The answer is to be holy. And that word holy, as I said a few weeks ago, literally means to be set apart. What does it mean to belong to this God who reigns in a world of evil and chaos? It means not to go the way of evil and chaos. It means not to go the way of progressive woke with equality, diversity, and inclusion as that zeitgeist seeks to take us away. It means saying no to the culture. No in our schools and factories and companies. No, as we say, like Christian, with our back to the world and our faces like flints, face towards the kingdom of God. I will live not for this culture, but for my king, because the Lord's reigns. Let's pray. Amen. Father, we praise you today that in the death and resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that you reign. Thank you. We praise you that you are a God of transcendence awe. Forgive us for the times when we've doubted your rule and gone the way of the world. Make us a holy people, steadfast in your words. Fill us with confidence and joy as we praise you and ask these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.